Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. Today, we're going to get very personal and we're going to talk about bowel issues, specifically irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. Not something people usually enjoy talking about, but considering that it's fairly common, affecting about 20% of the population in the United States alone, I think it's an important topic. And I'm going to be talking with an IBS expert, Patsy Katsos. Hi, Patsy. Hi, Diane. Thanks for inviting me to join you. Absolutely. Now, Patsy's a registered dietitian nutritionist who practices at Nutrition Works in Portland, Maine. And in 2014, she was named Maine's Outstanding Dietitian of the Year. So we truly have an expert here. Patsy, the, the focus of your practice is digestive health, which doesn't just include IBS, but it also includes gluten-related disorders and inflammatory bowel disease. Before we go for, further, can you explain, so there's a difference between irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease? That's right. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome or IBS is considered a functional disorder. That means that the guts of, of a person with IBS don't function properly, even though there doesn't seem to be any medical reason for that. Whereas people who have inflammatory bowel disease do have a disease process that explains their GI symptoms. Okay, thank you for that. Sure. So Patsy has also written several books. Her first was IBS, Free at Last, and her latest is the IBS Elimination Diet and Cookbook. So Patsy, when you first started your career, did you see a lot of clients with irritable bowel syndrome? Well, because so many people do have the condition, probably about 20% of my clients had it, even though they were seeing me as a dietitian for another health condition, you know, something like weight management or diabetes or, you know, help with their high blood pressure or cholesterol. But most of these individuals had learned at one point in time that they just had to learn to live with their IBS symptoms because we didn't have any really good treatments for the condition. What are the symptoms? Uh, well, they're, they're a little difficult to talk about sometimes. Of course, I'm used to that. But uh, the, the symptoms can include abdominal pain, uh, diarrhea, constipation, uh, bloating and distension. Uh, those would be some of the more common symptoms. And so these are symptoms that happen on a regular basis. I'm asking this because we all get anxious about things sometimes and, you know, have to run to the bathroom. But we're talking about some very specific symptoms that recur. Well, uh, you know, the, the way that IBS affects people varies quite a bit. For some people, it is just an occasional nuisance. Uh, for others, it can be, you know, a much more frequent and much more severe problem that can really rise to the level of being disabling. Um, it can really affect their jobs, their relationships, their ability to travel, and their quality of life overall. Hmm. So at the beginning of your career, what could you offer these people? Well, I would say prior to 2007, uh, for many decades, the, the main advice that nutritionists and doctors had to offer for irritable bowel syndrome uh, was pretty standard. Uh, eat more fiber, 
drink more water, get more activity, more exercise. And uh, that was about it. That was what we had to offer. Unfortunately, that advice to increase your fiber intake often doesn't help or even worse, uh, backfires and makes people's IBS symptoms worse. Oh, wow. But in 2007, something changed for you. Can you tell us what happened? Yes. Um, I attended an educational event that was sponsored by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. And I heard a talk by a lecturer, uh, a Harvard professor, who mentioned the term FODMAPs. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that term. And she said she thought it was going to be a game changer. And I thought, why haven't I ever heard of that before? What is this, this new thing, FODMAPs? So what are FODMAPs? Well, uh, it's an acronym. And it you can let me know if you want the, the gory details of what the acronym stands for. Of course I do. <laughs> okay. So it stands for fermentable, oligo, dye, and monosaccharides and polyols. Okay. And it's kind of a mouthful. But I usually tell patients that it's referring to a group of certain sugars and certain fibers in the diet that can cause GI distress. And they can do that because they have a few things in common. Uh, they are rapidly fermentable by the normal gut bacteria, and that process produces gas, and that gives the patient sometimes excess gas or bloating or distension. And the other thing these sugars and fibers have in common is that they have the ability to pull fluid into the gut, which can, for some people with IBS, cause loose stools or diarrhea. Well, you hadn't heard of it because, what, the research was just beginning? Well, a lot of the parts of the FODMAP concept have been around for many years. Uh, what was new here was the uh, concept that these FODMAPs have a cumulative effect and that we learn a lot more about how they affect people if we take uh, a big picture look at all of them at the same time. You know, it's, it's looking at the, the forest rather than the trees. Mm -hmm. That was what was really new about FODMAPs. And then you looked beyond because I'm sure you wanted to come back to your, to your patients and be able to share all of this with them, but there were a lot of missing pieces. Right, so upon hearing the term FODMAP for the first time, I went home and, you know, did what any sensible person would do and quickly tried uh, searching the internet for more information about it. And there was literally nothing there. There was one paper that had been published on the topic and, and that was really it. Um, it had just enough information in it for me to put together, you know, a, a one page list of do's and don'ts to begin thinking about and trying you know, with patients in my practice. And that, that was the beginning. So what were some of those basic do's and don'ts back then? Well, it might help if I just took a moment to talk a little bit about uh, some specific examples of FODMAPs. Okay. Um, so these are the FODMAPs and a few examples of foods that contain them. Uh, the first FODMAP is lactose, and that's also known as milk sugar. And there 
is plenty of lactose in certain milk products, but much less in others. Uh, the second FODMAP is fructose, and that's also known as fruit sugar. And it's present naturally in all fruits, um, as well as some vegetables. And it's also added to our food in the form of high fructose corn syrup or honey or agave. Uh, the third category is called polyols. Uh, that's the P in FODMAP. And another uh, name those are known by uh, is the term sugar alcohols. Uh, and these include mannitol and sorbitol, as well as many other OL sweeteners, uh, such as maltitol or xylitol or erythritol. Uh, so those are pretty easy to spot when they're added to our food as an ingredient, but they're also naturally present in many fruits and vegetables. So sometimes you can look at the labels and sometimes you can't. Right. So those three are the certain sugars that fall under the FODMAP umbrella. Uh, the next category of FODMAPs is called oligosaccharides. And these are the certain fibers that are defined as FODMAPs. And they are in a very wide range of foods. Um, right up at the top of the list of foods that contribute oligos to the diet are uh, wheat, barley, and rye. And your listeners might recognize those as the gluten grains. Uh, that really is a complete coincidence. Uh, gluten is not a FODMAP, uh, but these same grains happen to be also good sources of, of these particular types of fibers in addition to gluten. Um, other sources of oligosaccharides include beans, now, that one's not a big surprise. Everybody kind of knows what happens if you eat too many beans, right? Right. Uh, certain nuts are especially high in FODMAPs, including cashews and pistachios. Uh, dried fruits tend to be rich in these oligosaccharides. Uh, and, and then we have certain food ingredients that are added on purpose by food manufacturers to boost up the fiber content of food, including inulin and chicory root. I've not heard of the first one. I-N-U-L-I-N, -I -N, okay. inulin. Okay. That's pretty surprising to me that there are so many. Right. It's a complex diet, and it's also a little disturbing when you first hear this list of foods to realize how many of them are otherwise healthy foods, you know, that people are often eating on purpose to improve their diets. Absolutely. So, so let's... That's actually one way I recognize good candidates for the diet. You know, if they say, the harder I try to improve my diet, the worse I feel, hmm. you know, that's, that can be a clue that they're getting too much of a good thing. So let's flip it around. What can mm -hmm. they eat? Well, there are lots of other things to choose from. Uh, low lactose milk products are widely available. You know, for example, lactate milk, uh, natural cheeses are very low in lactose uh, all by themselves. They don't have to be any, any special brand or anything, but you know, cheddar, Swiss, and so on, those are naturally low in lactose. Uh, there, there is a nice list of low FODMAP fruits to choose from, including strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, bananas, pineapple, cantaloupe. Uh, fruit does have to be limited to small portion sizes, even 
even the low FODMAP fruits. Um, most of the salad vegetables are low in FODMAPs. Uh, they're most of the greens, you know, kale and spinach and uh, that sort of thing. Then there are a number of other vegetables that are suitable for the diet in uh, modest portions, like acorn squash and sweet potatoes. So there's still a lot to choose from. Well, that's good to know. So you tried this out on some of your patients, and was it a miracle for most of them? What happened? Well, I'll tell you, it was pretty shocking mm-hmm. at the beginning. It, you know, the, the results were spectacular, really. There's no other word for it. Wow. Uh, you know, people who had been working for years to try to figure out what was going on with with their IBS and how to manage it were just uh, so thrilled to have more control and more ability to predict when they might have symptoms. So a year after you tried this out, and about a year after you discovered them, you wrote a book because there's nothing out there. I did. (laughs) So you wrote the book, IBS, Free at Last, with an exclamation point at the end of it. Um, So you were sharing what you learned with a broader audience than just your patients. You wanted to be able to share it with other dietitians and with other medical professionals. Is that right? Absolutely. It was way too good to keep to myself. So I see you as a pioneer, Patsy. (laughs) Well, I felt like a little bit of a pioneer at the time. You know, I... I won't say that um, it was a hard sell because it doesn't take long for word to get around about how well something like this works. So I, I didn't feel as though I had to, uh, you know, do a lot of persuasion to interest mm-hmm. patients and, and their doctors in giving this approach a try. But I certainly did have a lot of explaining to do at first. Well, and, and you had the proof, too, I think, with some of your patients. Um, but who can benefit from trying the, the low FODMAP diet? So uh, it, is, it is a fact that not everyone can benefit, but about 85% of the patients who are carefully selected uh, to try the diet do get relief of their symptoms. And I have a little checklist of things that I consider when I'm trying to figure out who is a good candidate. Uh, First of all, the the patient or reader, for that matter, should have a proper IBS diagnosis. You know, because the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome overlap considerably with some more uh, medically significant or, or medically treatable conditions, People shouldn't just assume that they have IBS. They should actually present themselves for evaluation by their primary care doctor or by a gastroenterologist. So they should have a good proper diagnosis of either IBS or a related uh, GI condition that has uh, similar symptoms. What, what would a doctor do to make the diagnosis? Well, Typically, these days, um, it can be made on a clinical basis by just comparing the patient's symptom pattern with some established criteria. Mm -hmm. In the past, it was a little bit more of a diagnosis of exclusion where they would be typically unwilling to diagnose it before, you know, having the patient have every single other thing ruled out with a long series of tests. (laughs) 
but now I'm seeing more primary care doctors diagnosing it based on symptom pattern. Okay. Is this genetic? Does it run in families? Some aspects of it can. You know, for example, lactose intolerance is very genetically determined. Uh, so certain aspects of it can be. Also, you know, we, we really still don't understand the root cause of IBS. Earlier, I mentioned that uh, FODMAPs cause symptoms because they increase gas production in the intestines and they can pull fluid into the gut. These are actually really normal aspects of human physiology. These things happen in everybody's body when they consume FODMAPs. What's abnormal in the case of the person with IBS is the way their body responds to those events. And so there, there's a large aspect of uh, the way your, your gut and your nervous system interact with each other. And some of that could be uh, genetically programmed. So there could be some tendency of IBS to run in the family mm. in, in that sense. I wonder too, as people age, do you think they might be more susceptible to it? Or, you know, I've heard of things like people never being lactose intolerant, for instance, until mm -hmm. they're much older. Right. Uh, typically, young children are not lactose intolerant because uh, every child on the face of the earth needs to be able to uh, drink milk in order to survive. But in some cultures, we no longer need milk as a source of nutrition in the teen years and adult years. So many human uh, populations have lost the ability to, to digest and absorb lactose in adulthood. Interesting. Um, so if somebody is going to, has been diagnosed, and you're going to put them on a low FODMAP diet, what are the steps that you take? You don't just suddenly say, okay, you can't eat any more of these foods, can you? Right. In fact, I, I don't jump to that necessarily uh, before I, I try the simpler approaches. You know, if I'm working with somebody who never has tried those, those uh, traditional standard therapies like eating more fiber and drinking more fluids, uh, I do want them to try those things first. But if they have tried that and it's failed, uh, then... I may move on to FODMAPs or a low FODMAP diet if I think that they can do a restricted diet safely. Um, you know, there are a few people that this type of diet's not appropriate for. Uh, for example, people that have a history of eating disorders uh, or might be at risk for an eating disorder, uh, people who live in long-term care facilities and aren't, don't really have enough control over their food um, I, and I'm, I'm very cautious with using the diet with children who might be anxious or uh, too young to understand the whole concept. Mm -hmm. But let's assume we have a good candidate here before us. Okay. Uh, they've already tried uh, the standard therapies. Uh, I pitch it as a dietary experiment. I, I'll say, um, you know, I'll give the big explanation about what FODMAPs are and what foods they're in and how, how uh, those concepts relate to the foods that they typically eat. And then I'll ask them if they'd like to try a short-term dietary experiment where they limit all of those high FODMAP foods in their diet for a few weeks. If they get a dramatic response, then we know we're onto something. 
And then they typically come back for a follow-up visit where we plan to reintroduce the FODMAPs one type at a time and see what happens. Uh, And the goal here is to try to narrow it down so that they uh, need to only modify or restrict their diet in the ways that really make the most difference to them. Uh, But my overall goal is for uh, the patient or the reader to eat the widest variety of foods that they can tolerate. So it's been 10 years since your revelation. Um, Have things pretty much stayed the same? Well, no, they haven't. Uh, It's a really active area of research. So uh, the evidence to support this approach continues to grow. Every year there are several new papers published on the subject. Uh, It's really captured, I think, the popular imagination among bloggers and uh, writers. And there are now, I think, if in some cases uh, there's too much information out there about FODMAPs, and I find myself more and more working with people to try to sort through through all of that uh, rather than bringing the the subject up for the first time. Okay. Can be confusing in the beginning. Yes, Yes, it can. So in these 10 years, you have also written several cookbooks. You lecture all around the world. Um, Your audience is still a broad audience, working one-on-one with patients or answering their questions. Speaking of blog, you have a blog. and I do. um, But you're also continuing to try to educate other dietitians and other healthcare professionals? Right. So these days I, I still see patients in my own practice for one-on-one help three days a week. Uh, the rest of the week I am writing, as you say, uh, and I do uh, trainings for other healthcare providers in various locations around the country. And I am an invited speaker from time to time for shorter talks uh, directed at healthcare providers, primarily dietitians, uh, at, at professional events and meetings. And, you know, I'm always trying to communicate to those healthcare providers that, uh, you know, identifying appropriate patients is really critical. Uh, modifying the diet isn't without risk, so they need to know how to work with people to mitigate those risks. Well, that's, uh, where, that's where an educated dietitian nutritionist comes in. That's right. To be able to be a partner in the in the team. Yeah. It's very exciting work to do. And I when I do these professional education events, I can really um, feel that in the room, you know, that these dietitians are just so excited by the opportunity to help people feel better. A lot of fun. I was thinking as you were speaking that it must be so gratifying too because you see results. You have happy patients. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. They they are very excited to realize how much control they actually have over over the way they feel. You know, there may be times when they don't mind experiencing some symptoms to have. You know, whatever that food is that they now know is a problem for them. Uh, but just uh, knowing what the outcome may be 
gives them a lot of confidence uh, in their social life. They can enjoy eating out again and traveling again. And it's a pretty wonderful thing. You know, it's funny that you should say that because it's not related to IBS, but I have um, heard people say, I can't eat this anymore. It, it does this to me. But mm. tonight I'm going to, and I'm going to suffer the consequences because and I want to. <laughs> Especially when you're among friends, right? Right, right. Yes, who understand. So your latest book, is it out yet? It's just coming out. It'll be uh, out on April 11th, and it's published by Harmony Books this time, which is a lot of uh, fun for me and a whole new experience to work with a traditional publishing company rather than self-publishing. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, the newest book is the IBS Elimination Diet and Cookbook. So this is a revised and expanded version of the first book? That's right. Can you give us a little peek inside? Sure. I mean, the heart of the book really remains the eight-step program for eliminating and then reintroducing FODMAPs. Uh, but of course, all the lists of high and low FODMAP foods and all the menus and so on have all been updated to reflect the latest research. And one of the biggest additions is uh, the many new recipes that I've added to the book. Uh, when In the first book, I deliberately kept the recipes to a minimum just to uh, focus on keeping it as simple as possible and not scaring anyone mm. away with the idea that they might actually need to cook. But there's been quite a bit of, of consumer demand for more recipes. So apparently uh, there are a lot of eager cooks out there and some of those uh, high FODMAP foods have a lot of impact in the kitchen. Uh, for example, I don't think I specifically mentioned onions and garlic earlier as high FODMAP vegetables, but you know, those because those are the basis for so many recipes, people need a little bit of extra help in the kitchen overcoming that and making sure low FODMAP food still tastes great. Well, that's what I was thinking. My gosh, what do you do about the flavor? Mm -hmm. But you've got some tricks up your sleeves. I do, I do. <laughs> what particular spice or herb do you recommend most often to people? Is there one? Well, garlic. Garlic-infused oil still works really well on a low FODMAP diet. It's low in FODMAPs. So that's a really terrific way to still get the flavor of garlic in into your food without the FODMAPs. And other go-tos are things like the green parts of scallions um, and leeks. And then sometimes just trying to shift the focus of the flavor away from those things onto other ingredients that are really yummy. Uh, for example... I use a lot of fresh lemon juice in my cooking, and a lot of smoked paprika is one of my favorite low FODMAP spices. Uh, you want to up the ante on the quality of some of the other ingredients so that they can really shine. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite meal, a favorite FODMAP meal? Well, uh, today as it happens, I posted uh, one of my favorite recipes for uh, shrimp stir-fried rice. I like that one because uh, it's very versatile. You know, it can accommodate a lot of uh, whatever vegetables you have on hand mm -hmm. and whatever source of protein you'd like to use in there. Um, so Where do you find all the recipes? Um, I have to pretty much uh, 
come up with them on my own. You know, you, you may start with a standard recipe, mm-hmm. but um, you have to modify it because you can't use regular milk. You can't use regular all-purpose flour. Again, no onions and garlic. So you can take a recipe like a, a classic recipe for macaroni and cheese and change the heck out of it until it <laughs> until it's low fab, FODMAP. You might, when you make the white sauce for the macaroni and cheese, you would you would use lactose-free milk and you might use cornstarch to thicken it instead of regular flour. And then the pasta, instead of you know regular macaroni, would be made out of another lower FODMAP grain like corn, quinoa, or rice, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> wow. You know, you had to test all these recipes, too. Oh, yes. So we, we full and triple test our recipes. You put a lot of effort into this. I'm impressed. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, so let's tell people where they can find your books and also more information about FODMAPs and about the work you do. Okay, well, I guess my website would be a great place to start. Uh, the address is ibsfree.net. And more information about the book uh, and so on is uh, available on the website. And also a lot of general information about FODMAPs and IBS and who can benefit from a low FODMAP diet. And you have um, a, a blog as well? I do. That's also part of the website. So that's ibsfree.net slash news. Okay. And I would also like to shout out uh, the website and app that have been developed by Monash University. Uh, The app is available for iPhone and Android. And I, I... do like to support their work because they're producing almost all of the basic research about the FODMAP content of foods. People can just Google Monash University? Monash University app. Um, Low FODMAP app, I guess. Low FODMAP app. Low FODMAP app. Okay. That's not a mouthful. No. It's a great program, and I, I was over there in 2013 to meet those researchers and see their the lab where they do all their work. And, wow. um, it is a, a purchase app, but the, it's well worth it, and the proceeds go to support their research program. Okay. Uh, when I put up our podcast on my blog, I will include a link. Okay, try make it easier for people. So we're going to have to wrap up, but first, before we do, if someone suspects they have IBS, you recommend the first thing they do is to get the diagnosis. That's correct. And what next? Uh, what next would probably uh, be taking a hard look at their usual diet, uh, perhaps with the assistance of a registered dietitian nutritionist. Uh, start by seeing what can be done to improve the diet at first. And then if those improvements don't yield the results you're looking for, uh, consider a FODMAP elimination diet. So they need to make sure to use that word FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, when they see the dietitian. You cannot take it for granted, can you, that every single dietitian in the world will know about them? Or can you at this point? 
Well, dietitians are similar to doctors in that we have different areas of practice. So one dietitian might be really focused on helping people manage diabetes, and another might be uh, a sports nutritionist, and yet the next might be an expert in FODMAPs. So yes, you do need to um, ask your gastroenterologist for a referral. That's always a good place to start. I also have a directory on my website that lists a number of dietitians who consider themselves expert in FODMAPs. That's a kind of a national directory. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can also look on eatright.org uh, using the, uh, the Find a Dietitian search tool for a dietitian with expertise in digestive health. And that organization, I know in Maine, it's the Maine Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, um, mm -hmm. but it's a national organization as well. That's, that's right. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think is important? Diana, I think you were very thorough. Uh, I'd just like to close by saying that uh, I don't believe people need to learn to live with their IBS in this day and age. Um, I want your listeners to know that they deserve a chance to figure out what foods work for them uh, rather than relying on one-size-fits-all lists of do's and don'ts. Well, I think that's very important information. I am sure that we have been able to help somebody. We'll find out. Thank you for spending time with us, Patsy. I'm I'm definitely sure that we've been able to help at least one person. I'll let you know if somebody gets in touch with me to say thank you. Thank you, Diane. I've been talking with registered dietitian nutritionist Patsy Katsos, whose area of expertise is irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, and the FODMAP diet. She's based in Portland, Maine, but she lectures on the topic around the world and she has written several books. Her latest, The IBS Elimination Diet and Cookbook, is just out. You can learn more and read her blog on her website, ibsfree.net. I'm Diane Atwood, and you've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. Thank you. If you have any comments or questions about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future podcast, send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Catching Health, and Catching Health is also on Facebook. And for more health reporting that makes a difference, visit catchinghealth.com. <laughs>